0: Father, thank you for the way in which all the things that you say in your Bible, all the things that you promise, all the pledges that you make, that they all find their fulfilment in Jesus. And so we'd like to ask this morning as we read this psalm and think about it together, that you would again open our eyes to the greatness of your Son and our King, in whose name we pray this. Amen. Songs can have a very powerful effect on us, can't they? Uh, Especially if it's a song that, you know, is linked to a certain memory, a song that's linked to a certain life circumstance, a certain life situation. For Sue and I, an example of this would be the Billy Joel song, Just The Way You Are. Uh, That song came out when Sue and I had been going out for a while, but just at the time when we were starting to realise how much we really did love each other. And even now, when the song comes on, you know, say it starts to play in the car on the radio, suddenly we are transported back in time. Back to when we were dating, back at uni, sun is shining, birds are singing. Can't help, you know, getting a bit mushy, making eyes at one another. If any of the kids are in the back seat, they just sort of tell us to get a room or. (laughs) Songs can do that to you, can't they? Songs are very powerful, they can be very a motive at bringing back memories, evoking certain feelings. Maybe there's some songs in your life that bring back strong memories. Now, friends, this powerful effect that songs can have, you can actually see it happening in the New Testament because what you discover is that as you read through the New Testament, often at really significant moments, the New Testament will, quote, an Old Testament song, a song from the Psalms. And when that happens, it's like listening to an old familiar song start to play on the radio, as suddenly all these Old Testament memories, all these Old Testament emotions flood into the New Testament text. And over the next few weeks, we're going to investigate this sort of thing happening by looking at some of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The first one being the one that we're going to kick off with this morning, Psalm 2. An especially significant psalm in terms of its context within the book of Psalms. Because you see, there actually is a context within the book of Psalms that we're going to need to be aware of each and every week. Because the psalms are not a random collection of songs. There is a pattern to them. Although maybe we're not used to thinking of that. Because you see, the book of Psalms is often described as Israel's hymn book. And there's a degree of truth to that. It is a collection of songs which Old Testament Israel used to sing. But the danger in thinking of Psalms like that is that you can start to think of the Psalms the way we think of church hymn books. Modern day song books. Because in modern day song books the order of the songs in them don't really matter so much, do they? You simply look up the song that you're after, and the song that came before it and the song that came after it are pretty much irrelevant. And the danger, the temptation is to think of the psalms like that. So you simply look up and you read the psalm that you want, and the psalm before it and the psalm after it are largely irrelevant. Friends, the psalms do not operate that way. They are not in random order. There is a pattern to them. There is a unified story and theme threaded through them. Their order matters. And as this series goes on, hopefully we'll get to discover some of the reasons why that order matters. Sufficient to say that this morning's psalm, Psalm 2, it's got a really important context coming as it does right at the very beginning of the book. Psalm 2 introduces us to one of the very important themes that will keep popping up throughout the rest of the book. See, Psalm 1, the very first one, which interestingly is not quoted at all in the New Testament, Psalm 1 kicks off the Psalms with an invitation for us, the reader, to contemplate and reflect on the commands of God. Blessed is the person, the Psalm 1 says, blessed is the person who meditates on the word of God, who shapes their life around the word of God, God's instructions. And you see, with Psalm 1 introducing us to the importance of meditating on God's word, Psalm 2 now introduces us to one of the key ideas within God's word that we must meditate on. And there's a very close connection, therefore, between Psalms 1 and 2. It's highlighted by the way the two psalms use similar words and similar phrases. For example, Psalm 1 opens by saying what the blessed man doesn't do. Psalm 2 closes by saying what the blessed man does do. In fact, Psalms 1 and 2 are so closely connected in some manuscripts that the two of them just run straight into each other. There is no special heading. There is no chapter break for Psalm 2. They are very closely linked. And this context to Psalm 2, it's got the effect of highlighting the importance of what this psalm is telling us. Because if Psalm 1 urges us in general terms to view life from God's perspective, here now in Psalm 2 is perhaps the most important perspective on life that we've got to get right. What's the perspective? Well, for that, we've got to turn from the context to the content, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, throw off their fetters. Now, the content of Psalm 2 has four main movements to it. Each movement has three verses in it and each movement has its own distinctive feeling, its own distinctive tone. Here in the first movement, the first three verses, the feeling is one of surprise and dismay. Why do people reject God and his anointed one? Why? The phrase anointed one means God's king, God's Christ. The writer of the psalm is probably making a reference to King David. For us, though, this side of the cross, we, of course, know that God's anointed is supremely Jesus Christ. And so the psalm, this song, it immediately plunges us into feelings of bewilderment that we can actually identify with. Why are people so anti-Jesus? Why? Why is it suddenly so awkward in a conversation when you mention Jesus by name? How come Jesus' name gets used as a swear word, but not Muhammad or Buddha? Can Can you even think of a mainstream movie or TV show in which Christians or Jesus are shown in a positive light? Why? What's Jesus ever done? Except help people chatting to a friend of ours who's recently spent some time in work uh, in Eritrea, in Africa, and he was saying that it is just weird how persecuted Christians are there. Because if anything, they are the best citizens of the country. They work hard, they're honest, they honour the Bible's command to respect their rulers, and yet they are just always persecuted. It doesn't make sense. The first section of Psalm 2, the psalmist is bewildered by this. Bewildered by people's opposition. The psalm then moves from bewilderment to bemusement in the second movement. Bemusement on God's part. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now there's a contrast being played out here. The contrast being that down on earth, you see, there is the sound of rebellion. Down on earth there is the sound of sabre rattling and mutiny and hostility. Meanwhile, up in heaven, what's the sound up there? It's laughter. Because think about it. The kings and the rulers of the earth want to go up against God? You actually want to pick a fight with the creator of all the universe? Who in their right mind would do that? It is so stupid as to be laughable. A contrast follow, another contrast follows. Now between what the kings of the earth have said and what the God of heaven says, verse five. Then he, God, rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, in the first movement of the Psalm, we have heard what the kings of the earth were saying. They've been saying, Let's break our chains. Basically, they've been saying, let's be the kings of our own life. And here in the second movement of the psalm, we hear God, after he stopped laughing about how pathetically weak they are, now we hear what God's response is, and it is a flat-out, categorical, end of conversation, no, I have installed my king. He is firmly putting his foot down on any talk of mutiny. Like it or not, you have your king, it is the one I have chosen. Deal with it. Suck it up, princess. Wouldn't be a bad paraphrase of verse six. <laughs> and it is now reinforced in the third movement of the psalm because, in the first three movement, in the first three verses, we heard the nations speak words of defiance. In the next three verses, we hear God speak, effectively ridiculing how pathetic their defiance is. And now in the next three verses, we hear God's anointed one himself speak. And he speaks words of privilege and authority. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The anointed one is quoting back the sort of things that God himself has said to him. Notice the privilege of these verses. God has said to me, you are my son. In other words, the relationship between God and his appointed king is very, very close. I have become your father. Now, please understand that when God anoints his king, it is very different to the way we appoint our rulers. You know, when our Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, eventually anointed the uh, Gillard government after the last election, that was effectively an administrative act. When God anoints his king, that is a very personal act. It's a father-son act. The implication being that God will take it very, very personally if you reject his Christ. Notice also, as well as the closeness between God and his king, notice the incredible authority that God gives him. In verse 8, the nations are described as his inheritance. In other words, God's king owns everything. The ends of the earth are his possession, we're told. So have a look around. Everything you see, this lectern, this building, the chair you're sitting on, Person next to you, your mum, your dad, your children, you, all created by God for His Son. And He rules them completely. And if anyone dare oppose Him, He will shatter them into a million pieces. The other day I opened a kitchen cupboard. Because I had carefully stacked the cupboard before, out fell a pottery jug, smashed everywhere. I was finding pieces for days. That will be the fate of anyone who opposes God's king. Resistance is futile. He can smash you. He will smash you. If you dare defy God's king, all of which leads the psalmist to his conclusion in the fourth and final movement of the psalm, Psalm 10, uh, verse 10. Therefore, in other words, as a result of everything we've just heard in the psalm, as a result of the bewildering stupidity of thinking you can go up against God and his king, as a result of the fierce determination of God to affirm his king, in, in as a result of the incredible authority and power given to God's king, as a result of all that, what should we do? Well, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, from beginning to end, this psalm has been pointing out that God has set his choice of king over us. And to resist his choice of king over us, to ignore his choice of king over us, to refuse his rule over us is just plain dumb. You cannot go up against him and expect to win. And so your choice is either kiss the son lest he be angry or you can kiss your life goodbye. Your choice is either submit or he will smash you. That's a pretty in your face sort of psalm, isn't it? And coming as it does right at the beginning of the psalms, it adds weight to the importance of this lesson. Here is a perspective on life, friends, that we must get right, okay? Here is a reality check you must come to terms with. God's anointed one, his choice of king, is the master of this world. The ends of the world are his possession, and whether you like it or not, heck, even whether you believe it or not, he owns you. We do what he says not the other way around. And friends, that lesson, that message, this song, it actually pops up in some very key moments in the New Testament. And just like hearing a familiar song start to play on the radio and all the memories come flooding back to us, when this song gets dropped into the New Testament, suddenly all the emotions of this psalm come flooding into the text. See, come with me to Acts chapter 4. I'd like to look at one instance of this psalm getting quoted. There's a few other instances, and I've put some of them in brackets for you to have a look later if you'd like to. But it's Psalm 4 that I'd like us to especially notice, because I think there's a pretty good lesson to learn here. Acts chapter 4 in the New Testament. And the story so far is that Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, have been arrested for telling people that Jesus has come back from the dead. Peter and John have actually been dragged before the exact same people who not all that long ago organised for Jesus to be crucified. And those exact same people who had Jesus killed are now telling Peter and John that they'd better shut up about Jesus otherwise they're going to get into trouble. That would have been a very intimidating threat. I wonder how Peter and John respond. Acts chapter 4, allow me to read from verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And do you see what's happening in this little section? The disciples are being opposed and intimidated by some very powerful and influential people. And they pray to God. And they use Psalm 2 as the basis of their prayer. Now, please notice that in doing that, Peter and John are unambiguously making the connection that Jesus is the anointed one of Psalm 2. They are joining that dot very clearly for us. That the king whom God has chosen for us, the one described in Psalm 2, it is in fact the risen Jesus. And suddenly, you see, All the emotion and authority, all that stuff that we've just just been thinking about in Psalm 2, it comes flooding into the text. Jesus is the anointed one we need to kiss, or kiss our life goodbye. Jesus is the anointed one we must take refuge in. He is the king whom it is utterly stupid to go up against. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that in itself is a helpful reality. Because the great mystery, of course, the wonderful surprise, is that when Jesus arrived, he didn't come throwing his weight around, did he? Jesus arrived on the scene, and despite having all the authority that Psalm 2 has described for us, yet he came to serve rather than be served. He came to die on a cross in our place. He came to receive a punishment we deserve so that we could take refuge in him. That's the wonderful message of the gospel. The fact that King Jesus came to serve us by dying in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. And yet the perspective that this psalm pours into the New Testament whenever it's quoted, the helpful perspective that it provides us with is do not mistake... Jesus' servanthood for softness. Do not mistake his meekness for weakness. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that just because Jesus is keen to help you, do not fall into the trap of thinking that you can somehow easily dismiss him, therefore, and not have to pay any consequences. Do not fall into the trap of taking him lightly. Do not fall into the trap of dishing up to Jesus some sort of lukewarm obedience. Well, you know, you might try and get to church most weeks or maybe a growth group or when it suits, but then forgetting about him during the week. He is the Lord Almighty of Psalm 2. He holds more power in his little finger than you can begin to imagine. He is not some beggar who's content with any little morsel we might happen to throw his way. He controls every compartment of your life. He doesn't need to ask permission from us for anything. And if we dare defy him, he can bring down more pain than you can possibly imagine. He will smash his enemies. And so friends, the thought of disobeying Jesus, the thought of being lukewarm towards Jesus, that should actually utterly terrify us. And if it doesn't, you have no idea who you're dealing with. Go back and read Psalm 2. But, friends, here in Acts, what I'd really like you to notice is the effect of all this has on the disciples. Because here's the main lesson I'd really like you to learn, leave with this morning. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. See what's happening there? After quoting Psalm 2, after reminding themselves of this psalm, after correcting their perspective on things with this psalm, the early Christians were provoked into great boldness. Which of course makes complete and utter sense. Because by reminding themselves of the extraordinary authority of God's Christ in Psalm 2, that not only highlights the incredibly dark place you're going to end up if you defy him, but the flip side is also true. That by reminding us of the the extraordinary authority of God's Christ, Psalm 2 also highlights the incredibly safe place you will end up when you seek refuge in him. So who cares what the Sanhedrin are telling them to do? Weighing up whether to obey the Sanhedrin or to obey Jesus, according to Psalm 2, that is a complete no-brainer. Are you going to go with a mutiny... That will eventually be crushed, or you're going to go with God's King, in whom there is safe refuge for all eternity. Now, friends, this, this has enormous applications. This week, you are unlikely to be hauled before Sanhedrin, but you are likely to come up against, I don't know, some unhelpful pressure, some choices you're going to have to make. Maybe with friends or school or work, or colleagues at work. Maybe there'll be people this week, people you respect, maybe even people who have worldly authority over you in some way, and they will pressure you to compromise loyalty to Jesus. And we will be left with exactly the same questions as Peter or John. Are you going to obey them? Are you going to go with them? Or are you going to obey Jesus? Are you going to go with God's anointed Christ? Psalm 2 helps us to see those sorts of decisions that are going to come our way with stark clarity. Are you going to join a mutiny that will eventually be smashed to pieces like pottery? Or are you going to go with God's King, in whom safe refuge is found for all eternity? I have a Christian friend who uh, is an accountant and he uncovered massive corruption where he worked. And he then had to face enormous pressure from his boss to turn a blind eye to it. Uh, My friend chose to obey God's anointed, and he reported it to the ICAC. I know a girl who worked in a bookstore where they started selling more and more and more pornographic material. She chose to obey God's anointed and she eventually went to her boss and respectfully said that unless he stopped selling it, she would have to resign. Friends, even this week, there are going to be instances where you are going to need to choose who you will obey, who you're going to follow. And I wish it would always be a happy ending. Uh, The girl in the bookstore, the boss decided to stop selling the pornographic material because she was such a quality worker that he wanted to keep her on. I wished it always ended like that. My friend who discovered the corruption at work, he lost his job. And then he had a, a nervous breakdown from the death threats that started being delivered to his home. I wish following Jesus would always have a happy ending in this life. But it doesn't. Sometimes it will bring pain and embarrassment and even mistreatment. But that's okay. Psalm 2 reminds us that, in terms of the big picture, anything else is utter foolishness. Do you really want to go with a mutiny that will eventually be smashed to pieces like pottery? Or would you like to go with God's anointed King, in whom safe refuge is found? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. Blessed are all who take refuge. In you. I'll pray. Father, thank you for this psalm and its reminder to us of the authority and the grandeur and the power of your anointed king over us please by your spirit help us to live our life with this perspective in mind friends help us uh, father please help us when we are facing decisions that compromise our allegiance to jesus please help us to view those decisions from the perspective Of this psalm. Father, we pray that you would help us to submit and to honour your King. Thank you for the safe refuge that He provides for us. It is in His name we pray and ask this.